Well, if you would, brethren, let's return to Paul's letter to the Galatians. We have finally reached the last section of this letter. These last eight verses consisting of Paul's final thoughts to the Galatians. So looking, looking forward, the plan is to divide these last eight verses into three separate messages. And today we'll be covering verses 11 through 14. And the next message will incorporate verse 14 and then 15 and 16. And then we'll close the letter on these last two verses. And since this is message 71, I guess uh, Lord willing we'll have a total of 73 messages in Galatians. And uh, so let's read verse, verse 11, starting in verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So Father, we're thankful that You've given us to know something of Your greatness. Thankful to be able to gather. Thankful to be able to have Your Word. And Lord, I pray that as Jesus promised as He was lifted up from the earth, He would draw all men unto Himself. I, I pray in this hour by Your Spirit, You would draw both Your people and those who are not yet Your people to Yourself for the glory of Christ. I ask it in His name. Amen. Well, something noteworthy here as Paul finishes up these, this last section as he closes this letter. He closes it out the same way he begins it, brethren. Very straightforward. Very much to the point. Very much aimed at his deep concern for them. I mean, there's no, no small talk of Paul here. There's no greetings or salutations from brethren that he's with, you know, greeting the brethren who are reading it, or nobody who, he's not greeting brethren, uh, no words to brethren that are on the receiving end. There's no talk about his travel plans. There's no talk of, there's no prayers he offers. There's not even any thanksgiving. Uh, all the things that accompany Paul's other letters are absent. Instead, he issues another indictment. Another indictment aimed at the Judaizers and then contrasts that with the most central matter that is at stake both for Gentiles, Galatians, Jews, you and I, everybody. But before he transitions here from his doing good exhortations that we've spent the last few weeks covering in the previous paragraph, he transitions from the doing good to this central matter I'm going to bring out really in there in verse 14. He makes this somewhat unusual statement here in verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It seems as though Paul just grabs the pen at some point 
and starts writing with his own hand, seeking to make sure his readers know that this letter is indeed coming from the Apostle Paul and not some imposter. Sort of adds his, his seal of his apostolic authority into this letter. Some of you that were with us might remember way back in chapter 4, we discussed there verse 15 that I jumped forward to this verse when we were talking about chapter 4, verse 15, because there are some that suggest that these large letters Paul speaks of here are due to his physical eye problem of not seeing well. And that's why he says there in verse 15, if, it's pos- if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Well, I mean, that is, that's pure guesswork and, and a lot of reading into the text. I, I, I'm not convinced that in any way there's any correlation between these two statements. It seems to me that Paul's simply using hyperbole there in, in chapter 4. And that statement has nothing to do with chapter 6, verse 11. And if you're interested in uh, you know, why or how I come to that conclusion, uh, I did cover that in that passage. Uh, in a message entitled, The Anguish of Advancing Christ's Gospel. But it was not uncommon in Paul's day, even for the Apostle Paul himself, to dictate to a scribe what he wanted to send to the churches. We find that at the end of Romans, that the, the scribe Tertius actually addresses, he's the one who wrote Romans for Paul, and he actually addresses the readers and saying, I, Tertius, wrote this letter to greet you in the Lord. The message was from the Apostle Paul. However, Tertius did all the actual writing on the parchment. This was a common practice for the Apostle. Yet, there, there are times that, like in his letter to the Corinthians, his letter to the Thessalonians, where he does what he's doing here. He grabs the pen himself and, and says something like, you know, I, I'm, writing this, I'm writing this final greeting with my own hand. He's simply wanting to put his own signature to the letter in, his clo- in some cases in the, in the beginning of the letter, in some cases at the end. And I'm convinced that's what he's doing here. Paul's explained to the reader why, why they're seeing a sudden difference in the in the penmanship between what was prior to this section he's now writing. In fact, if you just quickly turn over to, to 2 Thessalonians, we'll, we'll see this. We find Paul mentioning this practice at the end of that letter. Apparently, there was some question about Paul's authenticity or the authenticity of these letters being actually written by Paul. And so we see there in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 17, I, Paul write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I, Paul, write. Paul saying, see that the bad penmanship in this letter? <laughs> it's actually me taking up the pen here. This is, this, is, this is not my scribe suddenly losing his skill set. This is it's me. And I've made it this habit or this practice of doing this so the churches actually recognize, hey, this is Paul. It's Paul's chicken scratch. I recognize it. We can flip back to Galatians. Here Paul is, is, is pointing out the obvious to the original reader anyway. We don't see it, of course. But there were large letters that were written. And it was Paul's handwriting, not the scribe who would have been far more skilled 
writing and and more precise and uniform in their script. Um, It may very well be, as some have suggested, that just like you and I were texting one another, or you're writing an email and you start writing in all caps to emphasize something, it may very well be that Paul has really enlarged what he's saying here to emphasize as he closes this letter what he has to say to underscore these final words. But there's really not much value in spending too much time here in in verse 11 to figure it out. The more important matter is the content of these large letters. Follow, Follow verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Paul is basically summarizing what caused this distortion of Paul's of the gospel there throughout Galatia, as he as he calls it there in, in chapter one, verse seven. This distortion, this other gospel, another gospel. Paul says, a distortion that he pronounces anathema upon. Let him be cursed. Very, very strong language. That is, let him be doomed to destruction. I mean, that's, that's very harsh language. Why such language would Paul talk that way? It's because these Judaizers who were claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ, Christians, they had come rolling into town just as the dust of Paul's feet of that city as he's leaving the city. That dust just no longer settles and these guys come rolling into town. And yes, they most certainly believe the good news of Jesus and they believe the cross, but they started adding Paul's Gospel. They believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But you see, they believed in Jesus plus. And they came to correct and more fully complete Paul's Gospel by implementing circumcision and Mosaic law. They, just like the men we find in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, they said, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That is, you can't be fully integrated into the family of God and be considered a Christian unless you become a Jew, essentially. Now, if you're the real deal, here's the knife. Get at it. See, the Judaizers' idea of true salvation came by way of Jesus plus circumcision. And Paul spends the bulk of this letter showing why that is anathema and how Christ and His cross put an end to Torah and moral or uh, Mosaic law observance and how the Gospel makes both circumcised and uncircumcised completely irrelevant because of Jesus' work on the cross and the giving of the gift of the Spirit to God's people who produces what we just spent about 20 messages going over. Love, life, righteousness, fruitfulness, goodness. The law doesn't produce that. Now granted, None of us, not one of us sitting here, had the slightest temptation of thinking any men in this church must be circumcised in order for their salvation to be complete. Right? I mean, it's just, I mean, the thought of that is so far removed from us, it just seems like utter nonsense. However, once we peel back 
the details here and gaze into the motives behind such a notion, we're going to quickly realize the danger of anathema, of falling for a Jesus plus gospel is still very much alive today and very relevant to our day. In verses 12 through 14, Paul mentions twice, and he mentions boasting twice, and he mentions the cross twice. These verses are all about a contrast between boasting in the flesh and boasting in the cross. And so first, we're going to look at how these Judaizers were boasting in the flesh and how it manifests itself today. And then we're going to follow that with how Paul presents himself in contrast as one who boasts in the cross, which is the mark of every true Christian. Again, verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire that you have to have you circumcised so they may boast in your flesh. Paul exposes the Judaizers' motives here. They want to make a good showing in the flesh. They want to look good. They want to impress. Impress others with the flesh, by the flesh, for fleshly purposes. Paul is using flesh in every negative way possible here. Perhaps with a bit of sarcasm. I mean, the context is circumcision. No doubt he's alluding to the flesh of foreskin. But also to the appeal of human beings. Impressing the flesh with a mark on flesh, which is clearly driven by sinful fleshly desires. In fact, Paul says they want to make a good showing in the flesh so that so that they may boast in your flesh. Paul is suggesting to these brethren that the Judaizers are not, they're not, they don't have their best interest in mind in their Jesus plus agenda. They don't. Their primary goal is very self-centered. These men have impure motives, seeking to boast and making you or forcing you to be converts of their, of their false, distorted gospel. Their aim is simply making you a notch on their religious belt. They want to look good. And sadly, that's, that's all too familiar to us here. People who operate to simply look good. Brethren, there's countless people who've entered into church building today to look good. To impress others. And you know what? When you do that, you, you receive your reward. That's, that's your reward. The impression that you made on another fallen human being. That's it. That's the extent of it. I've seen more people come into the church making a huge splash, all these fireworks about their apparent entry into the Christian life only to prove it was just all for show. I don't even want to hear about some, some, some parallel Paul conversion because most of the time, it's just phony. It's fake. It's not even real. 
Nothing more than just a show of emotionalism of the flesh. No reality at the root of it whatsoever. See, the flesh loves to impress and it loves to enforce. And these Judaizers were good at both. I mean, they wanted to look good. They wanted to impose their legalistic standard of, of circumcision on others because they wanted to glory. They wanted to boast in displaying as many Gentile foreskins in the public as possible. All the ones they could collect. I mean, look at how spiritual, look how persuasive I am. And I know, I mean, I get it. <laughs> the display and the collection of foreskins seems like quite a disgusting thing to us. But it was a badge of honor amongst these Jewish people. And Paul sees that motive. And he sees this, the end of verse 12. Only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. You see, this, this was all for PR purposes. This is just a public show aimed at appeasing men and not being discredited or criticized or punished by their Jewish brethren. Aimed at looking good. Just pure external religion. And I tell you what, it's one of the biggest curses upon the human race. You see, it's not, it wasn't primarily for preaching Christ that the early church received persecution. You realize that? These, these men were making a claim to Jesus. Otherwise, they wouldn't be concerned about being persecuted for His cross. They claimed Jesus as their Messiah. They, the, the issue was they didn't claim Jesus as their sole basis of acceptance before God. That's the problem. No, that required the implementation of Moses. Gotta have Moses. That was the big issue. And it was there that Paul calls out their hypocrisy. And that they weren't even keeping the law themselves. Verse 13, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. Now whether Paul was referring to them not keeping the law in its fullest, truest extent, or that Paul was aware of some matters of the law that they were purposely ignoring or neglecting, it's hard to tell. But since Paul's already addressed in this letter that, that one is obligated to be a keeper of the whole law if one is going to live by it, which he does there in chapter 3, verse 10, and chapter 5, verse 3. Therefore, I'm inclined to think he's referring to such here, simply underscoring that you might think you're actually keeping the law, but you're actually significantly falling short of doing such. And most particularly, as its fulfillment is found in the very one you claim to believe. And its demonstration is fulfilled in love, which these men seriously lacked. These were massive lawbreakers. Like so often is the case with lost religious people, they majored on minors. They exalted religious form over internal reality. Choking on gnats and swallowing camels. Preoccupied with fleshly externals and ritual performance, yet void of the life of Jesus Christ. 
It's all pretense. Just a sham. A sham that distorts the gospel of grace. For the Jews, they sought, they sought to obtain righteousness by their law-keeping. Sure, we'll accept Jesus. No problem. But don't you dare touch circumcision or, 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 the, or the Mosaic law. Don't touch it. Don't preach a Christ that doesn't require Moses. Them is fighting words. And they were. Paul's running constantly, plots on his life, being stoned for that very thing. Greatest persecution came from that. This is so important, brethren. Because really it has not changed since the first century. People will gladly embrace Jesus, at least some version of Jesus, so long as they can package Him with whatever little religious fancy that, that pleases them, that's acceptable to them. Christianity at large is really a spiritual war of Jesus alone versus Jesus plus. It is. Let me tell you, Jesus plus is very palatable. It's very marketable. And it's very deceptive. So much so that most Jesus plus believers don't even know they are. Oh, the... The devil's counter response to the cross, very crafty and very destructive. And I'm not just talking about Catholicism, which is Jesus plus Mary. I'm not talking about just that. Or the charismatic movement, the word of faith, you know, Jesus plus prophecy or plus tongues, or certainly those are Jesus plus. But I'm talking about a gospel that would still have you keeping the law of Moses. That's out there and it's growing. We, we run in, we've run into folks telling us that you're not saved because you're not keeping the Passover. I, I've actually been invited by somebody to this church to a Passover. Brother was telling me the other night he uh, met a guy claiming to be a Christian who practices Leviticus 23. All the feasts, the Sabbath, the Passover, the Day of Atonement, all the shadows. Brethren, New Covenant Christianity is not about chasing shadows. It's all about following the substance. Jesus Himself. All these shadows were pointing to Him and found their fulfillment in Him. What about, what about the Gospel of Christian nationalism? Oh. It's just another Jesus plus law Gospel. Now I realize the term Christian nationalism take on different meanings, but largely it's the same thing. A wrong application of law on the Gospel. I think Jesus made it very clear. This kingdom is not of my kingdom is not of this world. Not this world. My kingdom is not not here, not on earth. Your citizenship, Christian, is in heaven, not the US. In fact, this country has never been Christian. 
Now, yes, we've been impacted. Praise God we've been impacted by Christianity, by Christian truth, by the gospel. This, this country's been everything but Christian. How about something even more widespread, subtle, and seductive? How about a gospel that would promise to take all your sins away and yet leave you in them? That gospel is rampant and deceptive in this country. And it's a, you know what? It's a Jesus plus that's not always so obvious. It's, it shows up in different forms, in different ways. You know, Jesus plus my baptism. Jesus plus my Calvinism. Jesus plus the sinner's prayer. I, made, I prayed the prayer. I raised the hand. I did the thing. Jesus plus my decision. Jesus plus my emotional experience. And we've seen that impact this very church. How experience can trump the very Word of God in people's minds. That is deadly dangerous. How about a gospel that would promise to take away all of your sins and make you sinlessly perfect now? That's quite appealing, isn't it? But that gospel helps no one. But it's out there. We run into it on the campus. Can't seem to get away from it. How about just tapping into what Jeff was sharing? How about, how about a gospel that denies the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ? An ever-growing heresy. And that's not, that might sound like a big theological word. But simply, it refers to Jesus dying, dying and satisfying divine justice. By taking God's wrath upon Himself, a wrath that you deserve, taking your punishment for you. That's a, that's a cardinal doctrine that's being denied in increasing fashion. It's no secondary issue. I can keep on listing perversions of the Gospel. Sadly, there are many. But that last one, brethren, you mess up the cross and you mess up the Gospel. Completely. And Paul would have none of it, and neither would Jesus. In fact, Peter, of all people, seeks to correct Jesus. On, it was a few months before he would lay down his life. You remember that conversation? He's telling the disciples, I'm going to be handed over to men, they're going to crucify me, and I'm going to be raised the third day. And Peter thinks it's a good idea to actually, he has the audacity to actually rebuke Jesus. Yeah, sometimes Christians can just be purely arrogant and stupid. And Jesus doesn't respond by saying, Peter, Peter, get behind me. You're in my way. I know what God's called me to do. You're thinking like a lost man, Peter. No, He says, Satan, get behind me. Why? Why would, why would Jesus call Peter Satan? Because any attempt by anyone to corrupt the cross, it comes directly from the pit of hell. It's derived from Satan. It originates from Satan himself. Hellish forces are behind the corruption of the cross. 
So both Jesus and Paul would have us know this is no light matter. It's not secondary. It's not insignificant. Getting the cross right matters. It's not something we can differ on and respect each other's opinions about. Brethren, the cross is what the Gospel is all about. You, you, you take away the cross, you have no Gospel. Brethren, that's why we need to know it. We need to trust it. We need to breathe it. We need to live it. We need to, if need be, die to protect the truth of it. Because nothing is more important than the cross of Jesus Christ. That is at the very heart of Christianity. You get the cross wrong, you get the Gospel wrong. And you get the Gospel wrong, you have no hope whatsoever. And that might sound a little bit dramatic, but it's absolutely the truth. Paul knows it. That's why he says in verse 14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. Man, boasting. Man just loves to boast. Loves to boast about his accomplishments and his achievements. And, you know, look what I do. Look who I am. Look at me. I mean, aren't you just blown away by my awesomeness? And you got to see, let's sit down. I'll tell you all about myself and all, all my accolades. And we're so good at that. In fact, verse 3 indicates that type of thing's going on. A lot of thinking self to be something going, was taking place in the name of Christianity. And Paul says, you go ahead. <laughs> you just keep on boasting about flesh. I've got one thing to boast about, and it's not me. Not me at all. The cross. I'm going to make my boast in the cross. When you boil it all down, human beings are either boasting in the flesh or they're boasting in the cross. There's no middle ground. It's one or the other. That's why I entitled this message, Your Boast Reveals the Most. It does. What are you spending your time and your life and your days and your hours boasting about? Isn't it amazing? Mankind never needs any. You don't need any seminars or training on self-boasting, do you? It's quite natural for us. I mean, if you could just be a fly on the wall in, in normal conversations that people have, it so often becomes this one-up contest. You know what? It's like, oh yeah, well that ain't nothing. I blah, 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 blah. It's just like this beating chest. I, my story's better than yours. And I, yeah. I mean, it's just all about puffing up of self. Boasting in the flesh, self-exalt, vain glory, even self-abasing. Don't get this wrong. Even self-abasing when it's all about you and your own little self-pity, it's preoccupation with flesh. Still pride there. Can't you can't break away from you? These men, very much in that camp as every lost sinner is. And you know what? The cross dispels that. Only the cross will. Just one good look at the crucified One. And you know what you see? What you see is a mirror. Wait, that's me. 
That's my judgment. That's what I deserve. That's what I am owed. What's He doing there? Why is He there? Wasn't this, wasn't this the guy who was going around doing all kinds of good? Wasn't He raising the dead? Wasn't He making sick people well and giving sight to the blind and causing the lame to walk? I mean, he was, what is he, wasn't He just down there washing his filth, the filthy, disgusting feet of His disciples? I mean, what's He doing up there? I'll tell you what He's doing. He's dying for you. He's bearing your judgment so that you might go free. Paul, Paul ends this letter. After all he said about the law and all he said about the Spirit, all of which address where our reliance lies, he sums it all up saying, your life truly depicts your relationship to the cross. It reveals what you boast in. Every Christian should be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I got nothing to boast in but the cross. Because the cross has completely changed my relationship to sin and completely changed my relationship to this world. I'm dead to it. It's dead to me. The cross is everything. It's the most important thing in the world. It is. And this, this isn't just something relevant to, to Craig because he's, he's a pastor. It's his job. You know, you know and this kind of stuff's important to pastors. They talk about this kind of thing. I hope that's not the way you think. This is the most important and relevant thing to every single human being on the face of the earth right now. Most don't know it. The cross is the apex of human history. All of human existence stands in relationship to the cross. It's either pointing to it or looking back at it. This is not only where God becomes man. It's where God meets mankind's greatest need. This is where sin and Satan and death are delivered the final death blow. The cross. This is where justice and mercy kiss each other. This is where God's wrath is carried out and made visible to the entire human race. And where His great love is put on wonderful display all at the same time. The cross. This is why Paul says, I decided to know nothing else among you. I mean, Paul, Paul was a very educated man, very intelligent man. He knew a lot of history. He could talk up and down till you were blue in the face or you fell asleep. But Paul was going to be determined to know one thing and one thing only, and it's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He was sold out on that. Why? Because at the end of the day, that's all that really matters. That's what matters most, the cross. We sang, alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote a sacred head for such a worm as I? See, when you see the cross, that's how you conclude your life. That's, what you, that's how you see yourself. That's, that's what you see in the mirror. A worm. Not somebody full of self-worth. Not somebody who should have you know, greater esteem for, for oneself. That's not it. Was it for crimes that I had done? He's hung upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. That's spoken from somebody who's seen the cross. 
Paul says we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and just absolute foolishness to the Gentiles. That's the message. Still, that's, When Paul said this, it's still exactly the same thing today, brethren. Hasn't changed at all. But to those who are called Christians, that is, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And God's people can say, yes, it is. Amen. Furthermore, he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Thank you, Paul. I love that. Not with words that are impressive to men. Lest the cross be emptied of its power. You hear that? It's not persuasive words by men. The powers in the cross. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I mean, Paul speaks about the message of the cross, the offense of the cross, the peace of the cross, the triumph of the cross, the wonder of the cross. Paul couldn't stop talking about the cross. It's all he talked about. It's what he boasted in. Philip Ryken says it well. The cross is not just something to boast about. It's the only thing to boast about. Amen. And listen, the Apostle Paul, he had much to boast of in the flesh. Far more than anybody sitting in this room. I mean, circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, pertaining to the law, a Pharisee. You don't get any better than that. As touching the law, blameless in righteousness. Paul said that of himself. Blameless. Those were the things Paul was daily boasting and his confidence was in that until until he had a true encounter with the cross. And afterwards, you know what he says? He views the cross. He sees Christ. And he says, you know what all those things I was boasting in? It's dung. You know that pile out there in the outskirts of the city? When 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 I stack my own life and my own person up to the cross... That's me, the pile, the pile of dung. That's my life compared to the cross. I will boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, have no higher aim than that right there. No greater cause. Let us be gripped by nothing other save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And you know what, brethren? You know it, by, you know it by your own experience, and so do I. The devil has a thousand different ways and avenues to preoccupy you and, your, and keep your minds absorbed and kept from the cross, from meditations, from contemplations of the cross. He'll give you, give it, and we got all manner of entertainment and hobbies and internet and social media, all kinds, all these time absorbers. He'll, and he'll gladly have you taking deep dives into great theological issues and, you know, trying to figure out how many angels can fit on the head of a pin or, you know, what's right, superlapsarian or infralapsarianism. And yeah, go ahead, fill your mind with all that knowledge and just tantalize all your intellect. That's just a wonderful thing. Now, all those things in and of themselves are not necessarily bad. But you see, none of them elevate the cross. They don't. None of that highlights the marvel of the God-man being crushed on that tree as we just heard, smitten of God to bear your transgressions. And you know what? There's power in that. 
There is wonder-working power in the cross. A power I can't manufacture, you can't manufacture, the best preacher on the planet can't manufacture it, but it's there. That is, that is the power. And the devil knows it's there. So he'll, he'll do whatever he can to cut off all contemplation in your life of the cross. Think about this. Think about that. You know, think about how nice the pews are and you know, the city and your friends. And Think about anything. Just don't think about the cross. Please don't put your mind on the cross because there's power there to defeat my kingdom. There's power there to overcome your sin. And I want to keep you just bound in your sin. I want to keep you struggling and fruitless. And Go ahead. Go play on the internet for three hours. Don't, don't think about Jesus. Just, didn't your pastor just didn't your pastor just give you a message on doing good? Do that. Go out there and just do a bunch of good. In fact, get so busy you don't have so busy like Martha, you don't have time to, to park at the foot of the cross. Don't, don't think about Jesus. Don't that's right, just move past the boring old cross. I mean, you know everything you need to know about the cross anyway, don't you? I mean, you don't need to gaze at that anymore. You, you need to study more important things. Don't study the climax of all human history. Don't study the heart and soul of Christianity. That's, a, that's elementary stuff. Brethren, without the cross, we bear the curse. We face the just judgment of God. Without it, the burdens that are lifted at Calvary that are removed from us, they remain. Think about all the burdens you've had in life that God's lifted off you. They would still be weighed upon your shoulders. Without the cross, brethren, we have no access to God. Without it, we perish. But by it, we have access to God. By it, by the cross, we have forgiveness of sins. By it, we have life. By it, we, we boast. And by it, all other boasting is removed. All those ten realities that Jonathan listed for us is a result of the cross. For the sake of the cross, let me be called a fool. Mock me as a fool. Let me die as a fool. So long as my foolishness is rooted in that most precious man who at that most precious moment took my sin upon his body that he might make me his own. Call me a fool. I'll gladly become one for him. We can't boast enough in the cross, brethren. We can't. Now, if these Judaizers boasting in foreskins, if you think that was strange, how much more strange is boasting in a crucified man? We're, we're, you know, we're, we're quite accustomed to this. The cross being a great sacrificial example of love in our modern Western world, and it's a great symbol of reconciliation. We understand it theologically. That's what I've been talking about. But that was not the case when Paul penned these words. To the onlooking world, Jesus' crucifixion was, 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 was an ugly display of utter failure. Think about it. This is the despicable, unspeakable horror. This guy is a Savior. He's a king. He's nailed to a tree. That's how the world thinks. That's how the world sees it. It's absurd. I previously mentioned this. This now that now penal substitutions become. In fact, they call it 
It's been so rejected, they call it the doctrine of cruelty. Christians are calling it this. Professing ones. Professing Christians can't fathom God crushing His Son despite what we just read moments ago. Hope was told by a pastor at this facility she's been staying at that God's not saving people from hell. God wouldn't do that. He wouldn't send people to hell. Instead, He's saving you into something. Which is an interesting recreation of the word save, isn't it? No, the message she's been hearing is you're perfect. You're worthy. Just pump up self. You see, men are ashamed of the cross. They're offended by it. That's why Peter says, Lord, oh Lord, no, that's not going to happen. I mean, you're not going to die. Especially you're not going to die that way, Lord. Not you. The cross is offensive. It's offensive because, you know why? Because it's a declaration of our depravity. It is. It puts on display the deplorable nature of human beings. But amazingly, its offense is what becomes its beauty. Because Jesus took that on. It's there where God's uncompromising justice meets mind-boggling mercy all at once. This is what baffles the world. This is what takes the Spirit of God to grasp and understand. In a way that only God could design. In the only way that would allow for God to be just and the justifier of believing sinful human beings, He satisfies His justice in pouring out His wrath on His Son and grants forgiveness of sins by that substitutionary atonement. And brethren, because that is so, it's the most attacked truth on the planet. At the the center of all spiritual warfare is the fight for the cross and everything it stands for and everything that it has accomplished for guilty, unworthy sinners like you and me. It's the boast of Christians because it's done the most for Christians. Has. We should not be ashamed of the cross. For that old, rugged cross alone is the power of God to save. And so, brethren, we don't need, we don't need something new. We don't need to, something new and appealing to the flesh. We don't need to get flashy and inventive. We don't, God, spare us, please. We don't need to dress up the cross with human wisdom and ingenuity and, and efforts and pizzazz. And we don't need to change the story. We don't need to make it more palatable. The cross is an offense and it always will be to its enemies. We don't need to apologize for it or seek to remove or soften its image. We just need to proclaim it accurately, faithfully, wholeheartedly, and expectantly. And I'm thankful those of you out there are doing just that. You see, the power of the Gospel has nothing to do with men. Nothing. We attribute far too much to men. We do. Far too much credit in preaching. It's the message of the cross that saves. It's not you. It's not me. It's not crafty worded messages by massaged by men and, and getting responses and 
It's, it's just a pure, unadulterated proclamation of the God-man coming down to this sin-sick world, willingly being nailed to a tree and profusely bleeding upon it to bear the judgment of Almighty God on behalf of sinners like you and me. A sinless Savior, mind you. Becoming our sin. So we might be made righteous in God by faith in Him. That's it. That's the message. Don't change it. Don't add to it. Don't get clever with it. We don't want to apologize for it. My friend, it is a message that liberates. It will liberate you from your sin like nothing else. It sets people. It truly does set people free. It imparts true life. It imparts eternal life. And I ask you, do you believe it? Do you really believe it? Do you find His message humbles you? Or are you just too proud to embrace it? I'm telling you, there's nothing more offensive, shocking, profound, life-changing, powerful, transformative, sobering, heart-wrenching, joy-filled, beautiful, wonderful, and glorious as the cross of Jesus Christ. It's in this message of the cross in the message of the cross that revelation takes place. I don't know how. I can't sit here and explain it. But in the lifting up of Jesus Christ in the cross, God takes people's minds and just opens them. I don't know how He does it, but that he, that's what He does. It's incredible. He's, if you're a Christian, that's exactly what He did to you and me. A closed mind, He pried it open, and all glory came flooding in. Yes, thank you, Jesus. It's in the revelation of the cross where we're given eyes to see the precious Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, but more importantly, my sin, my transgressions. He did that for me. It really is finished. He really did accomplish it. He really is sufficient to deal with all my brokenness and my problems and my... It's not because I'm worthy. It's utter nonsense. Oh, He did it because He's worthy. He's worthy of my praise. He's worthy of my worship. He's worthy of my all in all for saving my unworthy, wretched soul. Yes, he, for saving me from my sin and hell. There's a real hell to escape. He loved me when I was yet His enemy when I was walking in the darkness of my own self-will and rebellion, or even religious hypocrisy, whatever your case was, and He loved me and He welcomed me at the cross, not there to improve myself, but to turn myself in, to surrender, to cast my everything, my sin, my whole life upon Him. And He is now the one in charge, not me. He is now my, all my hope and stay. I ask you, is that true for you? Can you sing with an honest heart? All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. That's a serious question. He knows the answer. Have you given your all to Jesus? Are you holding something back? 
Are you really trusting in the grace of His cross this hour? Are you trusting in something else? Maybe Jesus plus something else. The cross. I ask you, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? It's the most important question to answer. The cross, it's the revelation that brings with it faith and repentance. A revelation that brings with it sight to see that my sin is just no longer worth it. In fact, it's abominable in His sight. It's as grotesque as a body hanging nailed to a tree. But if you repent and believe, if you simply humble yourself and bow at the foot of His cross, glory be to God. What will happen to you is that sin, not in part, but the whole, will be nailed to that cross and you will bear it no more. It'll be gone. And because He's taken it all away, now your life will be totally different and you want to live it to please this One who took all your iniquities and all your rebellion against Him willingly, lovingly. Let me close just asking you, what, what, kind, of, what kind of burden did you come in here, this building in here today with? It doesn't matter the type. Jesus will receive it. As I said, burdens are lifted at Calvary. That's the place where Jesus hung. He gladly takes the burdens of man's sin upon Himself. You bring your burden to His cross and He will gladly take it from you. He has five bleeding wounds that cry, forgive, 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 forgive. That's what He's all about. He came to forgive. He came out of love. He came to save men. He's coming again to judge. Don't get it wrong. Oh, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of this living Christ. It is. But He's such a merciful Savior. He's ready to pour out His grace upon those who humble themselves. But those who are in their pride resist, He's in a stiff arm. And He's going to bring the judgment of the just judgment of God upon such individuals. Jesus says, come to Me and you will find rest. That's a promise. He's a Savior that keeps His Word. Don't, don't wait till you're ready because then you'll never come. You won't. You, you'll never be fit. That's the problem. None of us are fit. He takes broken individuals just as you are. And He'll make you something new. You come to Him with all your sin and with all your heart. And if you do, I can promise you this, you will never be the same again. And the cross will then become your only boast. Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Lord, thank You for such mercy. Thank You for such revelation. Thank You for opening up our minds and giving us the gift of repentance and faith and the gift of eternal life. Lord, would You please be pleased to deposit such today? Would You be pleased to, to allow the, the Savior to receive the reward of His suffering? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.